Thanks, Patrick. We're reading from Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 21. Mark 11, 1 to 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and it will be sent back here shortly. They went and found the colt out in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since he was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found that nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, not, it, uh, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the city. In the morning, as they were along, alone, he saw that the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. To 25, that's what I had on my message earlier. <laughs> Have faith in God. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it does doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe and you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. Sorry, we'll just do a, a furniture rearrange here. Thank you. Yeah. The things you have to do. Though I do admit I can get used to people just doing everything for me. That's like, <laughs> that's quite good. All right, well, 
Thank you. Uh, I apologise I won't stand for you. Um, hopefully you can see enough of me to, to kind of follow along um, and hopefully I'll be able to stand for a whole half an hour next week. We'll see how we go. I'm going to pray and then we're going to keep opening up the Bible uh, and looking at this passage together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, it is such an incredible thing to have your uh, recording, uh, your words here for us so we, we can learn of you, so we can learn of Jesus and who he is and the amazing things that he has come to do. Lord, I pray that you would guide us uh, through these verses this morning. Uh, there's things that we may have heard before. There are things that we might find strange or difficult. Uh, we pray for your help, that your spirit would lead us and that he would uh, open these words for us and show us not only who you are, but show us what you mean to us. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as you might be aware, it was show day just the other day, Friday, or Devonport show day anyway. Uh, there was no show, so it was just a public holiday. But, but anyway, uh, you, you may remember going to shows. I always remember going to shows as a kid. Uh, they, were, they were a real highlight of the year. And for me, one of the highlights of the show was uh, show bags. Show bags are awesome. Now, I don't know if you remember as a kid, you know, going to the show and there were just walls of different options, all the different show bags that you, that you could get, everything you could have ever imagined. You know, there's, there's Hot Wheels show bags, there was Barbie show bags, there was uh, every lolly or chip or anything you could imagine. There was a show bag for that and for 10 or 15 or $20 you could get a show bag with those things in them. Um, as a kid, I, I thought this was the best. We were allowed to get one show bag every show. Uh, and so we had to choose very carefully. We spent hours, you know, looking at all the different options and trying to figure out, you know, which is the best value, which has got the best stuff, um, which am I going to be most happy with, you know, when I, when I get home. It, it, that's, you know, that's a weighty decision when you're a kid. It was, it was important stuff. Well, one year I remember it was very, very easy. Uh, we walked into the show and you got through the gates and the very first stall that you saw proclaimed in huge letters, the greatest show bag on earth. Right? It was you know, a very modest claim, the greatest show bag on earth. It was huge. It was the best value. It had the most pieces in it, uh, 200 pieces apparently, the best contents. Uh, it was also, I think, the most expensive. Um, but I was convinced, you know, this surely wouldn't lie. The greatest show bag on earth, that was going to be my show bag. I bought it straight away, toted around all day long. Now, do you remember that moment of excitement when you get home and you run to your bedroom? You're, I mean, you're exhausted from the day, but you're excited again. You run to your bedroom and you upend your show bag and everything pours out and you get to start, you know, flicking through and seeing all the great loot that you got in your show bag. The greatest show bag on earth. How exciting was this going to be? Or not? <laughs> <laughs> the, the name might, be, might have been a little bit off. Uh, cheap lollies, out-of-date chips, uh, rubbish toys, you know, little games that broke the first time you used them, temporary tattoos. It was the greatest bag of rubbish I've ever seen. It was amazing. I think from that year on, I, the Daryl Lee show bag, I don't know if they still do that. That is the best value show bag by far. <laughs> but, but, but that's the problem, isn't it? You know, the hype is dangerous. This was the most hyped up show bag. It was the greatest disappointment of show bags that I've ever had. The hype is dangerous. Well, what about the hype with Jesus then? Um, 
this passage that we read, it, it has some of the most famous things that Jesus ever did, doesn't it? You've got the, the triumphal entry. We've got the cleansing of the temple. These, these are big events. These are known of events. There, there's lots of hype there. They've, they've got big names as well, don't they? This is, this is exciting stuff. But actually, I think when you look at this story, and particularly how Mark records it, some of that hype might be misplaced. <laughs> the titles are a bit misleading, aren't they? This, this triumphal entry is not really that triumphal. This cleansing of the temple is not really that clean. You know, if I clean my house like Jesus cleans the temple, <laughs> you know, there's going to be words. <laughs> so is Jesus a disappointment? Is Jesus a letdown? Is he going to fall short? Or does Jesus actually deliver something far better for us? Is there actually substance, not just hype in Jesus? Now, if you've been here for a while, you know the answer to that. But I want to show you why this morning, why there is substance, why there is better than just hype in Jesus. And we're going to do that. We're going to see that as we pick apart this passage together. Now, since Mark 8, uh, for the last month or so, we have been on the road with Jesus. You remember there at Mark 8, Peter confesses who Jesus is. It's that high point of the book. Eureka, we've finally got who this is. And now Jesus begins on that road to Jerusalem. He starts explaining what's going to happen, what's coming ahead. Well, now finally we have arrived at Jerusalem. <laughs> we've got there. It's taken three chapters, but we're here. And what we're going to see today, what we're going to see over the next few weeks is now that confrontation begins. There's an escalation of conflict that we're going to see over the next few weeks. And really, some of these events today are what triggers that off for us. I'm just going to read the first six verses of chapter 11 again. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, tell him, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. It occurred to me as Jeff was reading this that I also rode a cult to church this morning. Um, that's the, the car. <laughs> it's about as the same pace as Jesus was, I reckon. Anyway, that's completely by the by. What I want you to notice in these verses is, notice just how in control of this situation Jesus is. You know, Jesus says, go and do this. Jesus says, if you do this, this might happen, so say this. And as Mark records it, that's exactly as it unfolds. Exactly what Jesus says is exactly what happens. And what Mark is reminding us here is that Jesus is in the driver's seat here. You know, none of this is just proceeding by accident. This is not just incidental events that come to Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus himself is planning. This is not happening against his will. But what is actually happening? What's actually taking place here? Well, let's keep going. Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Uh, it's an odd scene, isn't it? You know, Jesus gets this cult, uh, and it, it starts to feel like you know, that culmination of everything we've been seeing. You know, we've, we've heard who Jesus is. We've seen what Jesus can do. And now he's in Jerusalem. It seems like it's all falling into place, doesn't it? You know, the, the people seem to be getting in on the hype. We, this crowd who presumably were, were with him or were gathering in Jerusalem, they're excited. You know, they're, they're spreading their cloaks. They're waving their branches. This, this is a big deal. And there's some real kingly elements going on here, isn't there? Uh, the spreading of cloaks, that's, that's a sign of immense respect and usually something done for royals. We see them, they're shouting about the kingdom. They're saying, look, the, the, the kingdom is here. The fulfillment of David's kingdom is here. You know, it all screams winning, doesn't it? It seems like we're here. We, 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 this is what we've been hoping for. This is what we've been expecting. But, <laughs> but there's something off, isn't there? There's something that's, that's kind of missing. Um, I don't know if, you, if, if you've read the other Gospels recording of this uh, event recently, but, it, but if you do, and I encourage you to do so, what you'll notice is that the other Gospel writers record this very differently. They've got more detail, more hype, more excitement, more going on. Mark has chosen to pare his account right down. He's left a whole bunch of stuff out because his point is slightly different. He's saying to us, he's, he's screaming out to us, there is something not quite right here. Everything is not quite as it seems. When we see it in what Jesus does. I mean, it's the great anticlimax, isn't it? This entry into Jerusalem and then he kind of just looks around and leaves. <laughs> what? <laughs> that seems weird. The crowd yells, uh, but notice what they yell. They don't say, blessed is the king who comes. They don't say that at all. Actually, they say, blessed is the one who comes. They're actually just celebrating a famous pilgrim, aren't they? Not really a king. And all the while, Jesus is fulfilling some very specific words of prophecy here. A prophecy from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Zechariah, from chapter 9, verse 9. This is, this is what it says back there. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> That's exactly what is going on here. He is a king. He is coming in procession to his city. But notice, notice what sort of king is arriving here. What Zechariah said, a king of righteousness a king of salvation. And if you read on in that passage, and I encourage you to do that later in Zechariah chapter 9, the passage is a king of peace. Peace from sea to sea, of freedom and rescue. See, not a king of conquest, not a king who's going to come in triumph and in battle and in warfare, but a king of hearts. This is not the triumphal entry we might have expected because this is not the king we might have expected okay here's a here's a hypothetical situation 
Uh, say tonight you're in bed, uh, you're fast asleep, and your house catches on fire. I trust that that's a hypothetical situation. Now, for whatever reason, your house is on fire and you are trapped inside. There's no way you can get out. But that's okay because, you know, you're not in immediate danger just yet. And you've got your phone, you've called the fire brigade. It just so happens they're a minute down the road. They're going to be here in any moment. And they're going to come and they're going to save you. And, and they do, they come, they arrive. They, you know, lights and, and sirens blazing. They're, they're here, they rush out, they hook up their hoses. You're saved, or, or so you think. Because they call out to you, uh, sit tight where you are. We're just going to put the fire out and then we'll come in and get you. Are <laughs> you going to be thrilled to hear that? Uh, I, I don't think you will. Because what are you going to do? By the time the house is out, you know, you're going to be at least badly injured, probably dead. That's not good, is it? <laughs> that's not really helpful. Well, that's why Jesus comes here as he did, in a not-so-triumphal way. Because Jesus hasn't come to put out the burning house, so to speak. He hasn't come to rescue Israel from the problem of Roman occupation and all the restrictions that that brought on them. And, you know, if so, he would have done things completely different, you would imagine. But he doesn't because he's here for a different reason. He's here to rescue the people in the burning house. He's here to help them and go to them. He's not here to change where we are as in our location or our situation. Jesus is here to change us. To work in us and with us. Uh, there's another Old Testament passage that's alluded to here uh, and it's from Ezekiel chapter 37. And in that again, God is saying, I'm going to send my man. I'm going to send my David-like king. He's going to rescue. He's going to come and lead you out of your problem. But what he's going to do is come and cleanse the hearts of my people. And specifically cleanse them for righteousness. See, Jesus has not come to clean or make right or fix our world and everything we see around us. He's come first to clean and fix and make right us, our hearts, our lives. And the people then miss the point. And I think maybe we do too. Because let's be honest, that's confronting news, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's a bit of a slap in the face. Because who needs cleaning? Who needs that sort of help? It's people in really bad ways. It's people who are dirty. I mean, who is it that needs saving? Who is it that needs changing? It's people who are broken, who are, who are lost, who are sinful. See, Jesus is coming here and saying, the problem is you. The problem's in you. Uh, it's, it, you know, Jesus' entry here is not showy because his work is not external. It's the work, it's the saving of hearts. As, as Zechariah 9 uh, foretold, he's come for salvation. That is, for life near God, life with God, for righteousness. See, there is a real risk here that we can be like this crowd. You know, that we want a Jesus who will come and who will fulfill our longings, who will uh, fulfill our ideas, our ideas about what's right. You know, a Jesus who, who might make the world better or more comfortable, or, you know, at least my life. A Jesus who will just give me joy or fulfillment, who will make me part of something. 
Uh, Jesus, without pain or without change or without discomfort, he'll, uh, Jesus, he'll do it on our behalf. But what Jesus is saying in this entry is, he's better than that. You know, if he was to come and only save you externally or change your circumstances, you'd still be stuffed. Your, your life might be, you know, externally at least, better or more comfortable. But you would still be the same. You would still be in the same place, the same problem, lost in sin and destined for destruction. What good is it simply being comfortable on a path to that destination? But Jesus is better. He gave his life on the cross to take sin's punishment, to take sin's judgment, to provide the purification and cleansing that we need to change us, to rescue us from an internal problem and to take our punishment and to give us life with God. <laughs> it's better by far. Will we accept that? Will we stand and cheer for that? Will we accept the implications? Because let's be honest, if that's what Jesus is about, then surely that implies that we should be about that too. You know, if Jesus is about righteousness, if Jesus is about holiness, if Jesus is about changed lives, then shouldn't we be about that as well? Shouldn't that be our focus and our goal and, and what drives us? And I don't think we're really good at that. I don't think we're good at that because I know I'm not good at that. You know, our experience in, in Bible study and Connect, you know, we get to the end of the study, we get to some of those more pointy questions, which, you know, are a little bit more personal. And what do we say? That, that's a pretty personal question. How about we go home and think about that one? <laughs> How many times have we said that? You know, that way we can, we can avoid that awkwardness. We can, we can move past that difficulty of actually having to talk about ourselves and talk about our issues with one another. We, we have that culture, don't we? That culture of avoiding sin or, or treating it as if it's just something that's personal, that you can deal with in your life. But we don't really talk about it together because that would be weird. But the problem is we miss an opportunity, don't we? We actually miss what we're called to. Jesus is saying, we're, we're here to change, we're here to grow together, we're here to be refined together. We're, it's about our hearts, it's about who we are, it's about righteousness. Yes, it's uncomfortable, yes, it's hard and it's painful, but it is better. Can we really say that we are as concerned as Jesus is for our hearts, for our growth in holiness, for our Christ-likeness? Or are we actually just a bit more like the crowd? Do we just like a show? A nice, comfortable, flattering and never confronting Christianity or church or Jesus? Jesus has come for your heart. He has come to bring life to it. He has come to bring change to it. He has come to bring righteousness for it. Does your life, does my life, reflect his concern for it? His intent for its deep and personal and lasting change? Well, as if that wasn't confronting enough, 
Mark takes us from a very confronting entry to a very confronting miracle. Uh, I'm talking here about the fig tree, about the, the fig tree that Jesus curses. It is, I think by far and away, it's one of the weirdest stories in the book of Mark. It is just strange, isn't it? It's, it's odd, like poor fig tree out of season getting cursed. That, that's one of the least likable things that Jesus does, surely. So, well, let's, what, what, what's it about? Let's, let's figure it out. Let's read it together. Uh, chapter 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, I don't know much about figs, save that they're delicious. Um, But what I've read is that in early season, obviously you get leaf, but you also get a bud that's going to become fruit. Um, I don't know if that's true of all figs or just true of figs in this area and time. Uh, But that bud is edible. And it's thought, well, maybe that's what Jesus was expecting. But either way, what he found was a tree that was barren. It had leaf, it was alive, it was there it looked good and looked healthy but it had nothing it had no fruit had nothing to give him and so he cursed it and then he kept going don't worry we'll come back to the fig tree he kept going verse 15 on reaching jerusalem jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Now, I don't know how you have ever pictured this scene. Um, I've often, you know, imagined a, a building or an area, you know, roughly the size of our hall or, or maybe the size of a basketball stadium, you know, and Jesus comes in and he, he pretty much just hurries everyone out and, and that's it. But actually, actually, Jesus is in the outer courts of the temple here. And the outer courts of the temple are big. Uh, 35 acres are the, the outer courts of the temple, so... 500 yards by 350 yards, roughly. I know no one uses yards, but you get the picture. This is an enormous area. If you want a mental picture to kind of try and grab this scene a bit better, think of, think of something like Salamanca Market on a busy Saturday morning. You know, the, the entirety of that market, the busyness of that market, the people bustling around, the noise. And imagine in all of that, people trying to pray, people trying to sacrifice, People trying to spend time with God. You know, it's, it's utter chaos, isn't it? That's, that's the scene that Jesus walks into here. And now picture Jesus' actions. It is quite clear that his cleansing of the temple is not a thorough cleansing of the temple. That, that would be impossible. It would require an army. It would lead to an army coming to see what's going on. So what Jesus is doing instead is driving out a section, but actually he's making a point. He's making an occasion to teach. He's saying, look what you've done to my house. Look what you've done to my place. I mean, it's, it's awful, isn't it? Look what he says. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
You know what it's like. You, you go to a sporting event or maybe remembrance service or Anzac Day service and there's the minute of silence and someone's phone goes off or, or you can hear someone talking in the background or you know, a garbage truck or something like that. It, it's annoying in that moment, isn't it? You're like, oh, that's really frustrating. Well, imagine this instead. This is, this is the house of prayer and look what's going on. That's Jesus' point here. This place isn't able to be what it is supposed to be. And you are the ones, you are the ones who are stopping it. And after making his point, we come back to the fig tree. Verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus' word is very effective, isn't it? The next day, the fig tree is gone. Now, I want you to remember, this is something we talked about in Mark uh, a long time ago, so a few of you may not be here. But something that Mark loves to do is sandwich ideas. Um, writers call it the Mark and Sandwich because, of course, you know, you have to have a good name for things. But what Mark likes to do is grab a story, pull it apart, and stick something in the middle. And then the two stories feed into each other uh, and, and, and help us understand both of them actually better. And that's what Mark is doing here. He's broken up this fig tree account. He's put in the temple cleansing in the middle. He's teaching us. There's, there's a relationship here. In fact, what the fig tree is, is kind of like an enacted parable. Now, rather than just telling us the story, what Jesus does is show us. He puts it into practice. He's saying the temple is like that fig tree. It's fruitless. You know, it looks good. It looks busy. There's stuff going on. But actually, what it's supposed to have is not there. What it's supposed to be all about is missing. It is not doing what it is intended to do, and therefore it is worthless and due to be withered. That is his verdict on the temple. Rather than helping people meet God and get to know God and grow in God, the temple's actually become a barrier to all of that. It's become an impediment. And so it needs to go. So what's next? What's Jesus' solution? Well, it's there in verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. What's the alternative that Jesus is talking about here? It's simply, trust God. Have faith in God. Go to God. See, what Jesus is talking about here is not the, the formalized religion of the temple and, and the need for sacrifice and, and, and ceremony and ritual. He's saying, relate to God. There's a personal relationship with God. Uh, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, how prayer is trust put in action. That's, that's Jesus' point here. Trust God, talk to God, and that will lead to fruitfulness. Not like the temple, but fruitfulness. That's what Jesus has come to bring. Uh, you've probably heard of Yellowstone National Park. Um, 
famous national park in the States. You know, it's got all the big geysers, geysers, something like that. Uh, lots of famous things there, big, big national park. Uh, it turns out that about 100 years ago, there was a whole lot of complaints to park management that there weren't enough animals in Yellowstone National Park. You know, all these visitors were coming, they weren't seeing, you know, the great icons, the, the elk and buffalo, bison, I don't know, what, what American animals. They, they weren't seeing them, they weren't seeing enough of them, and so they were going away very disappointed. Well, they don't want people to go from this great national park disappointed, they want people to come back and keep supporting it. So what do you do? Well, they thought, let's kill the predators. Let's get rid of the wolves. And then there'll be lots of animals, and people will be happy. And so they did. They began eradicating the wolves. And would you believe it? Lots of animals. And people were very happy. <laughs> lots of animals every time they went there. Until there were so many animals that they began to eat everything. And all the plants died. And then erosion set in. And the park began to look pretty shabby. And people were not happy again. Too many animals. <laughs> Let's get rid of them. The solution, the very solution, designed to make people happy, to bring them to the park, to give them a great experience, actually turned out to be a disaster that almost ruined the place completely. Not happy people. It turns out wolves have been reintroduced now and the place is going very well. But that's Jesus' point here. This, this place that you have, this place that is designed to help you, to bring you to God, to grow you in God, to, to give you joy and peace and contentment in Him, it's actually ruining you. This place of meeting with Him is actually becoming an impediment to meeting with Him. Not because the place is flawed, <laughs> the, the, the system is not the issue, it's the people that are the issue. You guys are ruining it. And so it's not working. The place where you're meant to meet with God is keeping you from God. It is fruitless. And so it's got to go. Because Jesus has come for you to be near God. And not just be near God. Jesus has come for you to be near God so that you can be fruitful for God. How? Well, in Jesus. By knowing him by relating to him, by being close to him. Jesus' new way is better than a temple renewal. It is simply trusting God and knowing him through his saviour, Jesus. That is what he is here for. You don't need the temple. You don't need a place or a ceremony or a set of rituals. You simply need him. He is the way to God. He is the way to be close to God. The temple was designed as the place where all nations could come to God. Well, now that's in Jesus. He's where all can come. He's where all can learn him and bear fruit for him. See, we don't come to him to get what we want. It'd be so tempting and so easy to read that here, wouldn't it? You know, we, we saw that. Uh, it, it, it will be done for you. It will be yours. You know, whatever you believe, if you don't doubt. Even, you know, to the very mountains being thrown into the sea, it would be, be so easy for us to believe, oh, wow, this is a great way to get what we want, you know, if we just ask for it enough. But actually, that flavor's not there, is it? That's not what Jesus is talking about. Remember, Jesus is talking about being fruitful, about bearing fruit, not for us, but for God, for, 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 for Jesus. We're talking about closeness to him above all other things. You know, we see that in the last verse. Jesus almost abruptly changes tack and starts talking about forgiveness. 
But, but actually that fits entirely with what he's talking about. Because he's talking about being close to God. It's not that God's forgiveness is conditional on ours. It's that our forgiveness reflects his. That our forgiveness shows what he has done for us. That our closeness to him is tied up with our obedience to him. Reflecting our love for him. See, Jesus has come for our heart. He has come for its righteousness. Jesus has come for our trust. That we would lean on God, that we would bear much fruit for his glory. And so the question we're forced to face out of this passage then is, am I bearing fruit? And more specifically, am I bearing the fruit of trusting God and being close to God? So I think that's an important distinction because there's a, there's a trip up here. There's, a, there's a, a place where we could get mixed up. We, we can find ourselves getting caught up very easily in, in Christian things, in, in the stuff of Christian life, in doing stuff. And sometimes we can think, well, yes, I am bearing fruit. That's, I'm doing what Jesus is talking about. But there's a distinction to be made here, an important one. See, Jesus is not just talking about going and doing stuff. Jesus is talking about a life that trusts God, a life that depends on God, that makes decisions contingent on God, that does things because of and for God. See, there's definitely overlap, but there's a distinction to be made here. He's talking about utter and complete trust on God in all things. <laughs> That's harder, isn't it? Actually, that, that would be a bit more scary, wouldn't it? Living a life of complete trust on God. That's difficult. But it comes with some good promises, doesn't it? You know, we see what Jesus talks about. We've got the promise first of God's forgiveness. A forgiveness that accepts us and covers us when we sin, when we commit faults, when we make mistakes. But secondly, we've got God's provision as well. That whatever we ask for his sake, for fruit in his name, he will answer according to his will. According to his good and perfect will. See, what Jesus is promising here is actually amazing. <laughs> I mean, he's saying, whatever you want that will bear fruit for my name, I will give it to you. I mean, <laughs> doesn't that make you excited? Doesn't that give speak opportunity for us? Doesn't that make us think, well, what could we ask of God? What, what, what mightn't we have dared to that we should have or that we should be? You know, I think it's, it's kind of sad, isn't it? We get, we get kind of jaded as Christians. You know, it won't happen. Nothing will come out of it. That's not how our world works. Things are hard. <laughs> we're, we're cynics and skeptics. I'm a cynic, like, let's be honest. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about something greater, something more exciting and more wonderful here. He's saying, trust God even to big and stupid and crazy things. Let's, ask, let's pray for incredible things, for outrageous things. You know, I mean, stuff mountains being thrown into the sea, that's not really going to help anyone terribly. Let, let's ask for far better stuff. Let's ask for souls saved from death. Let's ask for revivals. Let's ask for growth, for new leaders being raised up, for new churches, for new mission fields. Let's ask for fruit. Because that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. Let's ask for stuff that's going to push us out of our comfort zones. It's going to change us and exhaust us. 
Let's ask for big and juicy and wonderful fruit for, for God's pleasure and for God's glory. <laughs> Stop playing it safe. Let's pray. Let's pray and ask and watch God act. Because that's what he does. So yes, it is not the great triumphal entry here. It's not the dramatic temple cleansing that we might have been led to believe. It is much better. What Jesus is promising here is life-changing and world-transforming. He has come for fruit. He has come for change. He has come for a kingdom that lasts forever. For a kingdom that is like no other. I saw a video the other day of uh, a guy um, who was wearing a, a VR headset, a virtual reality headset. Uh, and he was, doing, he was doing a tour of the Louvre in, in Paris. And he was doing it whilst actually in the Louvre in Paris, getting a, a virtual reality tour whilst in the actual building. Uh, it, was, it was for a joke. It was completely absurd, isn't it? Because why, why would you do that? Why would you go for a, a pale imitation when the true and rich reality is all around you? So why would we do the same with Jesus? <laughs> Let's not settle for a pale imitation. He is promising so much better. He is promising so much more wonderful. Why settle for a show? Why settle for small things when Jesus offers deep fruit, lasting change, and eternal life? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came for us to rescue sinners, to save people like us, to change us and transform us and bring righteousness to us. We thank you that he came to bring us to you, that we would be close to you, that we would each have relationship with you. Father, that is the best news. It's better than anything we could have imagined. And we thank you, we praise you for that work he's done. Father, we pray that those would be things that we treasure in Jesus, that we wouldn't look for simply external things, for small or, or outward change, but we would look for him uh, and look in him for deep and fruitful change. Father, we pray that you would give us much fruit, not for our sake, but for yours, for your glory. Father, you, you promise that you can do all things, that nothing we ask or imagine is beyond you. And so we pray, Father, may you bear great fruit amongst us. May we see it in our community. May we see it in our efforts. Lord, we long. We long for change. We long for many people coming to know you. We long for revival, for your power to be shown in wonderful ways all around us. Lord, we pray for this. May you do it amongst us. May you do it all around us and bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.